0: Hey guys, this is your host Shane with Radical Rocks. Today we've got a super exciting episode and it is jam packed full of stuff. You will not believe all the topics we have on rocks, gems, minerals, fossils, on the first artifacts, part of and more. The journey, I was looking at Radical Rocks. There were fossils, minerals, and rocks and things. There were sand, and hills, and rings. The first thing I found was a geode. All right, guys. Yes, there is Radical Rocks everywhere, and we're going to talk about a bunch of them. Um, Blue gemstones for the month of December. You got it. Um, What about gold being illegal? What do you know about that? Gold illegal? At one time it was in the United States of America. Um, What about some jewelry? Finding jewelry on a mountain? Quite a bit on top of a 15,000-foot-tall mountain. We'll talk about that. Blue violet gems we'll skim over. Mining with cosmic rays. This is what's going to be happening soon, possibly. Montana, the Sheraton gold and mining district history. We'll talk about that. We're going to talk about Strontium titanate, which is a pretty neat, beautiful blue gemstone. Mining in a church. Can you believe finding a valuable treasure in a church? How about a 3,000-year-old gold found in tombs, chrome dopsite, dinos in Italy, a whole herd, um, Sue the T-Rex, dinosaurs discovered that have super weapons, and so much more, guys. So much more. We're going to get into that and even more. I want to thank you guys for tuning into the channel. Um, on our YouTube channel, just look up Radical Rocks. will be the first one that pops up with uh, rocks and gems and minerals. We have I think 900 subscribers, so thank you for doing that. You can look us up on Facebook, MeWe, um, Parlor, any of those um, social media groups if you want to connect with us. Also, we got stuff on sale at eBay. Just look up Radical Rocks. That's our handle. We are there selling some wonderful gemstones and minerals right now and a bunch of other junk, <laughs> but gems and minerals are what count. You might be surprised about five uses for flint, also sometimes associated with chert. If you go to the Hindu, Hindu hinduantimes.com at the Hindustat Times, you can find an article there where it talks about this. It's got a picture of some beautiful smoky brown um, flint there that it, it actually looks very cherty. It is a form of a sedimentary rock, a micro-crystalline uh, quartz, basically, called chert. Uh, it is very pretty sometimes. Sometimes it's not so pretty, but it's been very useful throughout history. And this article goes into talk about one in particular called the checkmuck of pethar, And it says if you use a matchbox or a lighter... Um, you may uh, have used some of this chert because it could be used to start a fire. It ignites when it is rubbed against a similar stone. And in the ancient times, that's how they would try to start fires. Ancient people used to break it apart, make sharp edges, weapons, arrows, knives, swords. It can even be used for um, drilling. Flint also has been used as a gem. Uh, It was said to cause uh, the wearer to have self-confidence and courage, all kinds of other good things. According to the old scriptures, a stone is included among 84 gems. I imagine they're talking about the Bible there. For home decorations, a stone can be used uh, white in color, pink, green, blue, gray, black, other colors too. It can be used in constructions of walls and houses and used for making ornaments and jewelry. Um, Grading, cutting, polishing, and embellishing gemstones. All these things can be done with this uh, chert or flint even. Okay? So says our friends in India. Now, how would you find meteorites? I told you there's a lot more articles than the ones we told you about. You want to go find some meteorites? Well, you might want to look for remnant magnetism. Well, what does that mean? Well, what it means is you can actually go to the um, geological organization where you live if they have these magnetism maps, maps that actually show the gravitational force. The stronger the magnetism is, or the 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 um, gravity force that is there. That can be an area where there might have been meteorites, according to Adam Hunt here at Tweaktown.com under Remnant Magnetism May Be the Key to Finding Hidden Meteorite Sites. So he's had some success here. Uh, He comes from the uh, University of Alaska, the Geophysical Institute. They have found that These magnetism of rocks is a key to finding these impact sites. Naturally, they have about 2 to 3% remnant magnetization, and that is the number of magnetic mineral grains that they contain, such as magnetite, hematite, or both. So when you see these um, in different areas, this could be a hotspot. Now he goes into the meteor impact and how things change and what happens, and in some detail. He says, When you have an impact at a tremendous velocity, as soon as there's contact with that velocity, there's a change in the kinetic energy into heat and vapor and plasma. A lot of people understand there's heat, maybe some melting and evaporation, but people don't think about plasma. We were able to detect. In the rocks that plasma was created through the impact, he says. So it goes into other interesting things about these meteorites. And um, you can see what Adam has to say there. Again, if you go to Tweaktown.com and look up that article, you can find out more. He has a Facebook page, all kinds of stuff you can connect with him. Now, hard rock lithium is um, a big deal, right? Everybody needs it. If we're going to make all these electric cars and all this, we do not have enough. China also controls the majority of lithium. They're also taking over the lithium that is in Afghanistan At as we speak. This is something that's just transpired um, in the last few weeks or months. Maybe they've been working on it longer, but this is something that we've been aware of now. Um, it's coming to light how they are getting control of all this since... America has abandoned Afghanistan. China is moving in for those natural resources of lithium because they see um, our dependency on them will be huge and there's a lot of money to be made. But fortunately, um, there are other people working on it so that one person doesn't have a monopoly. We talked about some mines here in America, but they're being stopped by um, people who don't like mining uh, at all. And, and lithium, you got to be careful. I mean, this is something you need to be careful with mining it. You don't want that uh, leaking all over the place. But this expert and explorer in Australia has found uh, some good prospects also in Quebec. So we do have this at 7news.com.au, our friends in Australia, um, Marun Ray published this article about the potential of this new Western Australian being able to produce about half the world's lithium. Um, So that would be good to have some uh, competition there and more availability to this valuable resource that we're going to need, it looks like. All right. Next, where to buy emeralds in Australia? I'm not going to dig into this too much, but Julie published an article here in the Malaysia Digest. If you go to malaysiadigest.com, where to buy emeralds in Australia, she tells you where to go. And there's a list of, um, you know, if an emerald's worth buying, which emerald's best, can you, where can you get real ones, what's the best countries, where to find a natural one, um, and on and on and off. How much should they cost, which one's the best. You know, how much is a one-carat emerald worth? All sorts of great questions. And then um, it leads you into where you can find gemstones in Australia. And they call it fossicking instead of rockhounding, which I love. But 10 places to fossick for gemstones in Australia. Um, The Oberon region of New South Wales. uh, Cooper, Pedley, South Australia. Tasmanian town of... Kilcrankey Bay, in Verrall region in South Wales, Jimfields um, in Queensland, Glen Innes region of South Wales, the Hearts Range in the Northern Territory. So all kinds of neat things. It goes on and on about emeralds on this. If you want to check that out, it's a pretty cool article. Um, we do talk about those gemstones from time to time. So we're going to move on now. Our friends at Fire Mountain gems they always send out newsletters. You can sign up to their email. Um, they don't sponsor the show or anything, but a lot of great educational stuff here. Something I've always been fascinated with is metal clay. We talked about this a week or two ago. But this article here that they have, if you go to FireMountainGems.com and then look up jewelry making how-to videos, firing metal clay with a butane torch, they got a little video there. And you can actually make a shape out of this clay, and then put it on a fire brick. And very carefully, they have uh, safety here. This was uh, presented by Lisa Pavilka, and um, an award-winning artist and instructor. She is the one who teaches in the video here, but she shows just using a little butane torch, like what you would use in the kitchen, to. Uh, flamboy something or kind of you know if you're doing a meringue or something you want to just kind of brown the top of it if you're into cooking this is just a small little handheld butane torch um, and it will work for um, projects with it says uh, if you're going to use glass cabochons or fire able stones larger than five millimeters a kiln is required so smaller projects with smaller stones in it. You can do this. You want to be careful. No loose clothing, no hair that could fall into your work, well-ventilated place. Put the piece on a firing block. Ignite the torch at least, uh, you know, several, a foot or two away from anything flammable, you know, like paper or anything like that. certainly wouldn't want any flammables in the area that were not um, put in a safe storage, flammable storage. Um... It says if you're able, dim the lights a little bit because having the lights on bright, you may not be able to see the color change. When you ignite the butane torch, um, usually they just have a snap start. You, you You can lock it where the flame stays on and then snap it and it will torch on. You hold the torch about three to four inches away from the piece that you formed and you pass the flame over evenly over all areas. So it can't be a huge piece, but she did a heart that I would say is about an inch and a quarter um, in length and looked like it was, uh, you know, fairly thin, um, like a dime, a U.S. dime. And she was moving the flame around until it turned to a light salmon glow. So kind of a, a rosy glow. Now, if if you see small flames, it says don't be um, alarmed. This is sometimes the binder that's in the clay. I, you know, don't like power hit the smoke. It won't kill you, but it's certainly not healthy to, you know, inhale that stuff. If it curls a little bit, that's not a super big deal. You can hammer it between a rubber mallet um, and a leather mallet and flatten it back out again. Um, also, um, you will see if it starts to get shiny, then you need to pull back. You're getting too hot. You're going to blow a hole through it. So you need to gauge how far away to put the flame, and you want to move that flame back and forth across the, um, the whole surface evenly. And um, they said that this little piece that she did, you hold it and keep it hot for about three minutes. And then when it's finished, you just take the heat off, Um, You can use some tweezers or something. If there's no stones in it, you can dip it directly into water. If there is stones in it, then um, you would definitely not want to drop it in water because they could shatter. And then you can polish your metal clay piece by hand. um, Or they say in a tumbler, I think I would just do it by hand. So they have a copyright on this, but it's right there. If you want to use it and look at it, and um, it is for educational purposes, and they have all kinds of stuff there. So check it out, subscribe to their newsletter, and get some free education on that. That will help you in your lapidary shop and your jewelry shop. Now, a week or two ago, we talked about the uh, Northumberland diamond that uh, this 70 year old woman thought might be just some costume jewelry or something because she was a thrift store um, you know, very busy doing thrift stores and things like that. And she was just going to toss it out. And the neighbor said, you know, Hey, or a friend or neighbor said, Hey, you better have that looked at. Well, she did. And it is sold for, um, it says L two M. So I don't know, this is England. I, I'm, I don't know if that's pounds, 2 million pounds. That seems like a lot of money. I'd heard that they thought it might go for a couple hundred thousand dollars. It's, a huge 34-carat diamond, apparently. But, uh, yeah, I guess it could be could be worth a couple million, I guess. Um, auctioneer Mark Lane said the worth had a huge shock. And uh, they had undisclosed its price, but the price finally came out. They initially thought it was cubic zirconium. But come to find out, this is a beautiful, near-perfect diamond of extraordinary quality and, apparently, Also value. And there it is. You can check that out if you want to. I found this on bbc.com news. North Thumberland Diamond Worth L2M sold to a private buyer. Next. You know, um, December is, birthstone is blue. I'm going to get a swig of coffee here, excuse me. This article on uh, tatler.com has an article called 31 true blue gemstones for December birthdays by Charlie Miller. It doesn't have 31 separate gemstones. It has um some of them are are repeats, but they talk about the history of turquoise going back to Egypt, you know, thousands and thousands of years um before Christ or before uh, Our common air, whatever you want to call it. And they have these beautiful pieces of jewelry that were made. Uh, They talk about Queen Mary being very much into uh, blue, uh, turquoise, and diamond brooch. They talk about tanzanite. And there is a lot of tanzanite here, Um, pictures of tanzanite. This um, monta-minta tanzanite sapphire is a blue uh, color. They also have many pieces of turquoise here. Um, Parganella, a cushion-cut tanzanite, very beautiful. Um, deep, deep, dark, dark blue. You know, tanzanite sometimes looks purple. When it's really super high quality, it looks blue, I think. Um, now, this tanzanite that I saw, it says Kimberlyn, or Kimberly McDonald. Tanzanite drop earrings and it says um L32900 and what it is it's tanzanite but when you look in it it looks like almost like uh feathers and sticks that are darker inside this translucent tanzanite I've never seen a tanzanite with all this um Beautiful patterns inside. Usually it's just clear. You know, it's just a crystal. But these are really neat. I'd like to find out more about that uh, tanzanite with beautiful patterns inside. Pretty cool. They've got deep, dark tanzanites. They've got uh, some that's almost a purple, kind of a violet. Then also, of course, is the parabola tourmaline. They have one that is with a turquoise. This turquoise is a baby blue, not quite a Robin's blue, more of a baby blue turquoise that they have all around it. And this parabola tourmaline is also a aqua blue green color that is amazing. It's amazing. I'm telling you, it is just blow you away. It's so beautiful. Um, they've got several other turquoise and gemstones and stuff like that. So. If you are have someone who has their birthday uh, in this month, you may want to check this out. There was also another gemstone that I'm going to talk about in a while. I'm hoping it's I didn't lose it. I had a little bit of a technical difficulty, and I lost one or two of the articles that I had up and ready to share with you. The next one, almost like Star Trek, this new Startup helps miners stare deep into the earth with cosmic rays. At financialpost.com, Gabriel Friedman wrote on December the 2nd, almost like Star Trek, new startup helps miners stare deep into the earth with cosmic rays, the world's first earth x-ray. This could be used to untap and find metals, minerals, deposits far below the surface I scoured this article, I could not see exactly how far they could go down, but they do make it clear that this could save all kinds of money in drilling, and then you don't have to put all these holes in the landscape. Um, You will know what is in there. This is a startup company, Canadian's Digital Technology Supercluster, announced um, November They had invested $5.6 million in this group of company led by Vancouver's Ideon Technologies trying to pioneer this studying or x-rays of the earth. I hope we don't all get cancer when they do this, but uh, (laughs) this is what they plan on doing is using technology such as x-ray and MRI to help identify untapped metal and mineral deposits trapped far below the surface. The science is there. Um, The um, fine-tuning of it is yet to be proved, but they feel that uh, they've got a lot of support. They said 55% of a company's exploration in a budget is allocated for drilling. He estimates the uh, innovator of this company... The Ideon chief executive, Gary Agnew, he estimates $6 billion to $40 um, metric meters per year are being um, drilled, I guess. So whatever that amounts to in money, I'm sure. Here it is. Um, so they've got $3.7 million under the supercluster investment, they, they've got a lot of investors and it is moving forward and we'll see what happens in the next few years. If you want to look that up, financialpost.com, check it out. This is not investing advice. We're talking about rocks and minerals here. Lost mines. Have you ever heard of the old hundred mine? If you go to LostMinds.net, there's a nice article there on the old hundred mine. There's a video there. Um, It's in Colorado, and it is a famous area for gold and silver. There are mines built right into the sides of a rugged mountain. In about uh, 1872, the Neagle brothers staked a claim on the Number 7 vein. They'd been prospecting this area for almost 30 years. They had a huge group of claims in the Galena Mountains with gold. One of them was called the Old Hundred. It had a vein that ended up becoming the name for the mine. In 1898, they formed a company called the Midland Mining Company. They built a tunnel. They went, uh, the vein, number seven, was 12,000 feet high in elevation. It would cost a fortune to mine it. So they put the mine up for sale, and in 1904, a group of investors bought the mine, they formed a new company called the Old Hundred Mining Company. They had a lot of cash. They built a tunnel in the number 7 vein, built a narrow gauge rail section into the mine at lower levels. Then they built a rooming house for the workers. Took the ore down from the high tunnels. And they milled it down below with a stamp mill where they crushed it and the gold was prospect there or processed. In 1906, the mine was shipping out gold bars to the Denver Mint. Things were going good, the tunnel was straight, it was right, the ground was level, the mill was level. Um, but like many other things, in 1908, the easy gold ran out, and the other ore that was left seemed to be low-grade. Hard times, financial markets, the war, they went bankrupt. So, there it sits. Um, eventually, the mine went back to the government and back taxes. In 1930, there were some new miners that went and tried it. They found the low-grade ore to make a profit. They were able to do that. New technology in the 1960s. They built another tunnel five miles long, but again, they found the grade too low. The old hundred mine abandoned, rooming house on the side of the mountain, and miles of empty tunnels remain there as of the time of this writing Newly discovered dinosaur species has a crazy weapon tail. This dog-sized dinosaur has a tail that looks like a sword. They said that this is unlike any other animal they've seen. King5.com article says it just looks crazy. Newly discovered dinosaur species had unusual weapon tail. They've got a video here. Seth Borenstein Wrote the article. It was found in Chile. They've got pictures of it here. Spiked tails many dinosaurs had. um, Club tails dinosaurs had. Whip tails dinosaurs had. And now this thing looks like a sword. Um, Kind of like a saw and a sword. And this thing would probably um, chop your legs off. Related to the Ankylosaurus, they believe. And there it is. A bird-like snout and a tail tip so dangerous Uh, about to the thighs of humans just chop you right in half right there gone this would be a great defense against large predators Um, also had armor-like bones on its back so this thing was not easy pickings for the larger predators it had a pretty good defense sue the t-rex I thought I had uh, maybe gotten rid of this one inadvertently, but at uh, IdahoNews.com, it's coming to Boise. Opening May 27th, they've got a picture of Sue the T-Rex. This is the largest, most complete T-Rex fossil that has ever been found, according to this article. The best preserved T-Rex fossil. There's a cast of real dinosaur, plus a full-size replica of Sioux floor-to-ceiling display with prehistoric sights and sounds. In the picture here has a picture of another dinosaur being devoured. Pretty cool. So you can check that out if you want. Um, they've got a click there. It's the Discovery Center of Idaho. The display opens May twenty seventh, 2022. IdahoNews.com. You can look that up. Now, we talked about the dinosaurs recently found in Italy. Italy is not known as the biggest dinosaur area for finds, but this was a herd of 11 similar dinosaurs. And the article, theguardian.com in the UK-news, hyphen fossil remains of herds of 11 dinosaurs discovered in Italy. They've got more fossil pictures here of these creatures. Um, very complete. Very nice. This is what I like to see when I see um, that they're talking about it and, and saying what it is. These bones clearly in this picture are all of this one animal. It's even a novice can look at it and tell this is not a pile of fossils. This is not fossils from a mile to 55 miles away. This is fossils all found together, all cast in stone on one solid piece in well-organized fashion, so you can see what this creature looks like. Uh, They also found fish, crocodiles, flying reptiles, even some shrimp, which uh, probably were too stale to dip in cocktail sauce. Okay, I know, not very funny. This is cool. Dopsite, or diopsite, more properly stated. In the American Reporter, you can find out about this, AmericanReporter.com. Everything you need to know about Chrome Diopsite jewelry. Now, this green stone, what makes it so special? What makes it so beautiful? Well, it's a family of gemstones that is uh, a group of chemical compounds that consist of calcium, magnesium, iron, chromium, and aluminum. Quite unusual. These minerals sometimes found in meteorites and meteorite fragments. Diopsite is from the Greek word meaning to color or axe, like an axis with two sides, right? Chromedopsite, It is has a shimmering metallic sheen when a slight light shines on it. So it really has a neat play of color because of that. It is different than all the other green gemstones. Very rare when you find it in good quality, deep, rich, velvety forest green color. I have a small one somewhere that um, a wonderful friend gave me uh, when we were um, in uh, near Alpine, California. This one is one that you would want to probably collect and uh, hold on to. It's a great gemstone, whether you are uh, investing or you just want something that's different. You know, It has some different quality to it that makes it special. I've told you many times I like um, Alexandrite because of the color changes. So this one, too, has a slight color change. The green gemstone provides uh, beautiful green colors and this slight sheen when light goes from one area to the other due to the chromium and minerals that are in it. That's what gives it that wonderful property. Um, You want to get the highest quality you can. You want to look for imperfections. You want transparency. All of these things are very sought after. Um, Round, oval, marquise, and emerald are the most common cuts for this gemstone. I would probably suggest getting one that's cut unless you are able to facet yourself. It's about 5.5 to 6 on the hardness. Little bit brittle. Um, Emeralds also are that way. You can chip an emerald pretty easy, like opal. Um, Not quite as bad as opal, but... Yeah, that's why they like to use, um, they don't really do well as teardrops or um, sharp pointed um, shapes of gemstones. People usually shy away from those because they, they do break and chip. If you clean it, you just want to clean it in dish soap and lukewarm water with a soft brush or cloth. Make sure it doesn't get snagged into the prongs if it's set. Um, you should not use an ultrasonic or a steam cleaner with this gemstone. So it could have water or something in it that would make it crack. So you don't want to do that, you have to be very careful using steam and such. So if you're into chrome diopsite, you might want to check this article out. The AmericanReporter.com. Light plasticity is a new phenomenon. In the Art of Hard Stone Carving. What does that mean? Well, we're going to get into that in the Digital Journal at um, digitaljournal.com. This was published on the 3rd. Light plasticity is a new phenomenon in the art of hard stone carving, is the article. And they have a beautiful golden quartz. Um, It says it is titled, this carving, the Spaniard Sculpture by uh, alex alexandra leventia leventil Leventil. so this is a woman that's been carved out of the stone here quite beautiful um and what they are doing is carving out of interesting minerals this is actually a smoky quartz where it has been carved in the Animated light plasticity is what they state here. And then at the bottom, it says what'd you say? Didn't say nothing. Darn it. There was a note here I was gonna share it with you, but I don't see it now. We'll go into it a little bit more. Okay, the sculpture um again was created with this smoky quartz in the style of animated plasticity. Kind of looks like it's flowing, it's carved in detail, very mysterious, polished edges. Some are like windows changing the inner soul of the woman, bringing out the crystal's visual characteristics. Rotating the windows of the sculpture is like viewing the changing life of the female. So this plasticity has to do with how the image changes as it is turned from one degree to another. Like the flame of a candle, the image inside the grotto turns into smoothly flowing molten bronze with a slight tint of gold, old gold. Different images are similar to the feminine statues of ancient myths and legends. Some are symbolic of the eternal movement of light and shadows of life and death. The metaphor of the image of magic crystal is somehow embodied in real tangible object but your view and imagination are free to taste and experience what you will so you can see a little um hint of how parts of it are glowing parts of it are very dark and apparently as you turn this it changes if you've ever seen glass where it's etched and some of it's polished some of it's kind of frosted um i think this is the same type of thing that gives it the unique properties of this uh, term of uh, plasticity. It says um, that this artist here, Solaris, is made in quartz, carving based of the novel by Stanislav Lim. And it says, A quartz has unique optical properties that neither glass nor plastic have. In this work, the effect is of stars. crystals, a living organism, has a soul. The word is... Uh, a biological word. Anyway, it goes on and on about this other um, image that they have here, which it looks like a person um, holding a crystal ball. And uh, it has a lot of texture and depth. And as you turn it, it changes the visual um, look of this and gives it quite amount of depth and a luminous flux that creates many other nuances and manifestations of light. That's how they they uh, describe it here. They use such words as animation, silhouette, lights and shadows combined, lights and colors, um, and such to describe these. They do have a video at the bottom. You can watch it and see. Um, the company that's making these and selling these is Gems and Carvings. And uh, they have a website, gymsandcarvings.com, if you want to check this out. 3,000-year-old gold jewelry found inside a Bronze Age tomb in Cyprus. Apparently, this has to do with the Egyptians. I thought this was a pretty cool article. If you go to news18.com and look up that article, you will see it. Some uh, archaeologists from the new Swedish Cyprus expedition have unearthed <coughs> Bronze Age tombs that have been hidden for over 3,000 years. In this Bronze Age city, the Hala Sultan Tiki of Cyprus unearthed 150 human skeletons and up to 500 objects, including gold jewelry, gemstones, and... um. Cremix from about 1350 BCE. They first found them in 2018, but they were going through them very slowly. University of Gothenburg, in a statement, said this is very delicate work. Um, everything's, things were piled on top of each other, so they had to be very careful. They found a five-year-old girl with a gold necklace, gold earrings, gold tiara, and they feel she was very rich and famous um they feel this was a late um uh period um what else what else what else oh nephrotitis um is during this time and also other tombs they felt that this tomb was used over a period of time um through through many many years and where was the other one um archaeologicals One is Amur, a god worshipped in Mesopotamia. Two linen kings, father and a son, clay tablets. Um, Where else? They said one more name, Nephrodite, And there was another one that was a famous name that was in here as well. But anyway, I can't tell you the whole article, just highlight it. But if you want to see the article again, it's news, the number 18.com. The article is 3,000-year-old... Gold jewelry found inside bronze age tombs in Cyprus now, what about gold mining in a church? Maybe not gold mining What about treasure hunting in a church? Maybe you've heard about this um this mega evangelist uh Joel olstein his church uh he's a uh, super rich he teaches uh what people call the prosperity gospel and uh like it or not, and you can look this up at uprocks.com, UPROXX. And it says viral. In what sounds like a righteous gemstone storyline, a plumber discovered bags and bags of cash hidden in the walls of Joel Olstein's church. Mike Redman wrote about this on the third. <laughs> I tell you, this is crazy. Plumbers working inside the bathroom on a toilet. And a tile pops loose and all of a sudden out drops 500 envelopes stuffed full of cash. Um, It seems the allegation is that uh, cash and checks. The allegations are perhaps somebody was hiding this money to get it uh, later. And uh, the plumber, it says here, uh, the radio host that, reported this on KRPC Channel 2, felt that he should get a $25,000 reward. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, But, yeah. His church, it says, was infamously cited as refusing shelter during 2017. Well, that has nothing to do with this. But anyway, there was a treasure found in a church in the walls of the bathroom. Next. This also is about hues of blue-violet. Now, a lot of times we've done these articles on blue hues and blue gemstones and rich gemstones. And, you know, we go over them again every once in a while because there's some new stuff. So we're not going to go over all the details on this. But on qrius.com, hues of blue-violet, you can read about tanzanite and amethyst. And all these beautiful gemstones and how to pick good ones. But listen to this one. Strontium titanate. This is a beautiful violet blue gemstone. Um, It is man-made, it says. Made in uh, 1950. Caught the attention of people because of high dispersion power, which makes it look like a diamond. It has fire where it actually exceeds the fire of a diamond. Although it does not stand out on the hard, hardness as hard as a diamond, it, uh, it is a wonderful uh, substitute for someone who wants to get something that looks like a blue diamond or a violet diamond, sparkles like a blue diamond or a violet diamond. Recent jeweler users um, have used these gemstones to make uh, many attractive and shiny pieces of jewelry. Part of the strontium titanate is it is available in most colors and the very popular, most popular is violet and transparent. So that might be something different to check out if you're into jewelry and gemstones and you want something violet or blue like that. I thought that was interesting. Wanted to share that with you. Now, man, I got a lot for you guys. Was it always illegal to own gold? You know, a lot of times you listen to these investor shows and you think it was illegal to own gold. And if you're around about 1970, 71, something like that, when gold became okay for you to have it as an individual, you might, like me, think that gold was once illegal to own. Now, our friends over at Gold Rush Expedition, Inc. will send you out a free um, magazine, their Gold Rush Expedition Inc. Miners Review, and they sent me one out the fall twenty twenty one volume uh, issue two volume one. All you do is go to their website, um, Gold Rush Expeditions probably dot com. If I see it, I'll let you know what it is. But Gold Rush Expeditions, and they will give it to you. They got some great articles in here, um and one of them. Was about is it illegal or was it illegal to own gold in the United States? Now, um, of course, we can't just you know go over every detail in this article, but we can talk about history. And it was kind of illegal to have gold at least a specified amount. Uh, coins, bullion, and certificates were what was talked about. Um, it says in this article that in the 1800s. Following the Civil War, they wanted to reestablish the metallic standard of the U.S. currency backed by gold and silver. So, silver was removed about 1870, so gold was basically the American standard, more or less, technically speaking. The government had an exchange rate, I think it was like about $20 per ounce, um, and the government had to maintain a large stockpile of gold, in order to back their currency. Then in 1913, things uh, got kind of bad. Um, the Federal Reserve Act was passed because they said there was a panic in 1907 where the stock exchange started to kind of uh, go broke. People tried to do a run on the bank. And the article brings out that a lot of large investors, who probably had a lot to gain by getting involved in the monetary system um, as proven. If you've done any research on banks and lending and fiat money, then you will know that uh, it's quite a racket. But the Federal Reserve Bank has had to, at that time, have gold in equal to at least 40% of the paper in circulation. So, because of the Great Depression... um, and the collapse of the banking system, there was unemployment, all these things happened. Um, President Franklin Roosevelt declared a nat- uh, national emergency and forbid the holding of gold coins, bullion, and such. And again, the gold rate was about $20, a little over $20. And the only exception to um, having the gold was... Rare collectible coins and certain businesses um, could be licensed to buy and sell gold. But one interesting thing you will see is a lot of mines, um, to stay in business, they would put their claims as other things besides gold, even though they were looking for gold. And that was because of the war and the, the restrictions on gold. So that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, The main effect of this executive order was the Gold Reserve Act of 1934, just after the Great Depression. It raised the fixed rate of gold to $35 an ounce, and this made where people around the world and in the country um, were bringing gold to America and helped build up the uh, amount of cash that America could put out. It paved the way for a new government, including the New Deal. That was President Franklin Roosevelt. Um, This brought on a huge plethora of social programs and government-tentacle organizations' control and social uh, outreach and agenda. So ever since then, once the government starts something, (coughs) um, a new arm or organization, they almost never get rid of it. Once they start a new tax or new program, which is just another kind of tax, in my opinion, it almost never goes away. It just just increases their scope. So all these programs are still here. They've all been expanded on beyond ludicrous, in my opinion. Then World War Two came. So people were kind of upset about this, but with the war and everything in 1934, shortly thereafter... Um, World War II was starting to build up. We didn't get involved until toward uh, 1940s, the mid-40s, I believe it was, or early 40s. So, yeah, all those things were happening. And then after World War II, we had the Cold War and Vietnam. So there was federal deficits. Interest rates were going up. Um, they continued to go up after this point. So Nixon... Decided to take us off the gold standard. That's when we became 100% fiat. And then um, by 1974, President Gerald Ford legalized private ownership of gold. And gold has been more or less following the market. I kind of believe it's manipulated. but So that's the story. You could own gold back then, but you couldn't use it to buy and sell with so much. Um, Jewelry, yeah, you could have gold jewelry. Um, Manufacturing used it. Um, Other things like that were all still being done. Rare, super rare, collectible coins. Probably the rich people were able to get exemptions. Probably nobody else. So that was about it. Um, Jewelry that may have come from a plane that crashed was found. And these mountaineers are allowed to keep half of the gems that they found on Mount Blank community. This article is on the raventribune.com. You can look that up. It's by Kevin Wise. Now, Mount Blank, what is that? I had to do a little research. Um, This is uh, in French. This is part of the Alps in Europe. And it is super, super tall. Um, It is the highest mountain in uh, West Europe, 15,774 feet tall. Now, they had found airplane parts, they had found the remains of humans, all sorts of things, but a while ago, uh, there was a finding of a box. And this box um, was worth some 300,000 euros two boxes separately, 150 euros each, and they were able to get half of them, um, these climbers who found them. The gemstones are emerald sapphires and other gemstones that are believed to landed uh, on an iceberg half a century ago when the India plane crashed. In 2013, young Frenchmen spotted the metal box at Posiens Glacier, more than 400 4,300 meters above the city of Chamnox, uh, Probably saying that wrong. And the gemstones were packed in bags labeled Made in India. So quite valuable. Nice finding for those guys. Congratulations to them. And um, the last story that we have for you today is the Sheridan mining district. This is in Montana. Um this too is out of the Gold Rush Expeditions Miners Review. Um issue 2, volume 1. All this history can be looked up um, a lot of it online, some of it in the history. Um if you buy the um if you get the geology reviews and reports, you can get a lot of this stuff because they have to keep those reports harder to get now but uh, you can still find them if you look so basically the history of the Sheraton district which is very close to Alder Gulch was one of the very first mining areas in the 1860s there was quartz veins that were discovered um, there was a company mine on the Wisconsin Creek that started there was a mill on Mill Creek Um. And then in 1865, the mill had 12 stamps and 500 pounds each, and a capacity of 12 tons a day. It was driven by water power, a water wheel. They were processing about $2 a ton. Not a lot. The gold was caught on tables and blankets, and a Wittacker mill was running on Quartz Hill District. It had three stamps and crushed about 15 to 18 tons of gold there. That's pretty good, that's almost an ounce at that time, so that's not too bad. Uh, The company was sold in about 1883 to the Noble Mining and Milling Company, and then um, it was equipped with a tramway, a stamp mill, a cyanide plant, um, and other things. It was dubbed the most expensive operation in the district. The production of the Sheraton district has yielded regular production of metal annually since about 1865. And, uh, some of these statistics you can read here, how many pounds of lead pounds of copper ounces of silver ounces of gold. And, uh, from 1905 to 1912, the gold was uh over almost seven thousand ounces, it says here, and the value at that time, that would be about, I think it's only still about twenty dollars a ounce. Then it's 142,781 dollars. So I mean that would be <laughs> add a few zeros to that, right? That'd be a lot of money. Um. They got a lot of these records from the geology survey but some of the histories of the mines that are there there's the agitator concentrator Um, that mine had a lot of tunnels about 400 feet Um, it looks like it kind of fizzled out about 1937 or so quartz was about three to four foot wide in limestone the Bedford mine was a silver lead property They got about $5 a gold per ton at that time, so about a quarter ounce per ton. That was in 1888. They hauled 150 tons out of there by wagon. That's a lot of work. Um, In 1914, it was the most important mine in the Ramshorn District. The Bell Mine, uh, this was in a glacial circle head of Mill Creek. Quite an area there, 1909 to 1911. They produced gold, silver, copper, and lead ore. The Betsy Baker Mine. This was across from the Bedford Mine that we read about just a second ago. We talked about off of Ramshern Creek. Uh, Had quite a deposit of gold, silver, and intermittently worked up until about 1940. The Brandon Mill in Mill Gulch. Um, This was... Erected in about 1865. This is the one that had the 12 stamp, 500 pound each, that could work about 12 tons a day. They worked about $2 per ton. So that'd be like a tenth of an ounce, approximately. Right? Something like that. At $20, yeah. About a tenth of an ounce of gold a day. That's a lot of work. They process that on gold and blankets. The Buckeye... That was located uh, at Brandon near Mill Creek. This was discovered about 1860. They had five different locations. And uh, it did not have a lot of history on it until about 1896. That was about it. So 1860 to 1896. Had different claims and things like that going on. Company mine. Started about 1864. Developed by D.B. Noble. Um... It housed miners and family men. I think the building's still there. Operated the mine on a large scale for 10 years, up until about 1914. Cousin Gene and Cousin Jack, these are other mines up in Mill Creek. They went on till about 1937. The L&J, gold and silver production, up until 1940 it had claims on and off again from 1910 to about 1940. The Emma B also looks like it might have uh, continued through about 1934. Fairview, this one uh, looks like it worked up until about 1914, but there was some records also in 1923, and something popped up in 1963 as well. Either that or just a reference to the records. Gladstone. Um, this Gladstone mine it had a five-man crew, according to some of the data that they have here. Looks like it fizzled out about 1937. There was the Jackwin mine, the Lake Shore mine. Um, had a 10-stamp mill, pretty big area there. Hundred ton cyanide plant. That was a pretty big operation. The Lector, um, this was also load. Other claims associated with that. The Montana mine, Montana mine, um, had a, va- a vein on schist and quartzite. The Cherry Creek group was banded in 1914. Noble mine. Was uh, once purchased by St. Louis Company for ninety five thousand dollars. There was a mill erected, developed in eighteen ninety two, and then in nineteen o two, looks like it kind of stopped. The paymaster um, claimed by R. L. Green about the turn of the century, and looks like it fizzled out about nineteen thirty. There was a mill constructed in the twenties, and a mule team. They took everything and disassembled it and moved it to another mine. The Red Pine, Indian Creek, this one had a fissure vein developed by a short crosscut, an audit 500 feet of drifting, and then also 1,700 foot audit intersected at the 640 feet below the audit, according to records. Silver King, gold with silver values up until 19. 19- uh, let's see it started in, record started in 1917 and ended in 1927 the smuggler mine another one in Mill Creek with a 700 foot audit and more Snowslide was active until 1926 and intermittently through 1930 Sunnyside mine at cow Creek was a uh, little bit of work done there the tamarack and broad gauge was at the foothills of Tobacco Root Mountain and also in the east end of Sheraton. Active nearly every year from 1908 to 1940, producing gold, silver, copper with some lead. (coughs) Toledo mine foothills at Brandon and equipped with a 150-ton mill. 1888, the mine known as Toledo was developed a 200-foot tunnel, a 50-foot shaft in 1914, described as one of the most active mines in the Sheraton District for the pre- uh, preceding decade. And then the Williams Mill, erected by Quartz Hill in 1869, had only three light stamps and was used on 15 to $18 a ton ore. Really interesting history there, guys. Thank you for tuning in. I want to thank you for tuning in to Radical Rocks. Um, please join our social media and our YouTube and all that good stuff. And until next time, remember, rock hounds don't die, they petrify.